Good morning and welcome to Rising. We have a perfectly adequate show for you today and we are excited to present it, aren't we? Always, Robbie. Always excited to present it to you. We've got an interesting news day for you today. Special counsel Jack Smith will use Donald Trump's own cell phone records against him in his pr prosecution of the former president for his alleged efforts to overturn the 2020 election. For reporting in Axios, Smith plans to call an expert witness who can determine Trump's phone usage after the 2020 election, including on and around January 6, 2021. That includes the periods of time when the Twitter app was open on Trump's phone the day of the Capitol riot per the court filing. Mm. Yesterday, we learned that the Supreme Court will expedite consideration of Smith's petition that the court rules on the question of whether Trump actually has constitutional immunity from criminal prosecution. Now, a spokesperson for the Trump campaign hit out at Smith's petition with the Supreme Court, telling The Hill, quote, crooked Joe Biden's henchman deranged Jack Smith, so obsessed with interfering in the 2024 presidential election with the goal of preventing President Trump from retaking the Oval Office as the president is poised to do that. Smith is willing to try for a Hail Mary by racing to the Supreme Court and attempting to bypass the appellate process. Meanwhile, CNN's Caitlin Collins caught up with Senator Ron Johnson on the air this week, where she pressed the Republican on his support of the former president. Let's watch. Democrats have used the civil courts to harass these poor individuals. It's unfortunate. It's a travesty. But that's what Democrats do. They, they view politics as a blood sport. It was unfortunate. These folks did nothing different than what many Democrats have done in, in many states they certainly throughout did, our history. Senator, I mean, there were multiple slates of fake, ele fake electors, including in your home state. They're acknowledging that they were playing a role in trying to improperly overturn the election. That's what they said. The, they they got the themselves agreement. out of a nuisance lawsuit. They, they agreed to get to settle a nuisance lawsuit that never should have been brought. So you think it's it fine that someone... It was a travesty of justice. You think it's fine that someone who, who tried to overturn a legitimate election is still on a Democrat board electors have certifies. done that repeatedly. Democrats have done... Which Democrats one? have done the same thing. In, Republicans in Wisconsin, tried to been criminalize fake it. slates of electors? No, it's, it's happened in different states. I, Which I, I one, didn't come sir? prepared to give you the exact states, but it's happened. It's happened repeatedly. All right. There's a couple of things going on there. Let's take maybe just the last one since it's fresh. This idea that uh, what Donald Trump has done is par for the course for what any number of candidates have done, saying that they believe the election results need to be examined for fraud or any other kind of malpractice. That's the analogy Republicans have been making throughout. I think Caitlin Collins did a capable-ish job there of saying, well, actually, there's a distinction here. Are you actually alleging that other presidents or politicos in the history of the United States of America have ever gone this far to try to implement a fraud scheme to submit a fake slate of electors to the pub, uh, to Congress. And it, I didn't find that answer particularly satisfactory. What do you think? Yeah, look, it is true that uh, Trump's team went a lot further down this rabbit hole than, um, than I, again, Senator Johnson didn't give specific examples of the kinds of things he's referring to, but that they went now, they went pretty far. Their efforts were also unlikely to succeed and very clumsy and have resulted in numerous criminal charges for which a lot of them are, you know, pleading guilty to avoid serious jail time. So it was not exactly the, you know, a, a, um, 24 or Homeland or Mission Impossible sort of plot to, um, to overthrow the government. And it is true that many Democratic officials and mainstream media voices have complained constantly about the election being unfair or illegitimate when Trump won in 2016. Now, Trump 
again, I'm not saying it's a total equivalency, but it do, I think it does strike some people on, on the conservative side as, as a bit rich that this has become the, the most serious offense for which could be leveled at you, election denier, after we heard Hillary Clinton and all her supporters say that Donald Trump is an illegitimate president because of Russia. Yeah, I will say that the, the phrasing election denier is not doing what the Democrats wanted to do. And the crime here is much more specific than that. And the crime, they sh I would argue, just from an optics perspective, they should have been focused on since January 6th is not, you know, the vague election denial or even the encouraged a riot argument, which, of course, implicates free speech. It is the multi-week fraud to submit a fake slate of electors to try to uh, circumvent the political will of the people in various states across the United States of America. And that's the point at which he started to prevaricate when Caitlin Collins started to press him a little bit. And, and that is um, that has to do with what we opened the segment with, Jack Smith getting these phone records that seem to me, um, I think it's hard exactly to tell. So, so he's reviewed the phone records. He's going to have an expert witness who has some technological expertise, I guess, in what the, 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 what the phone, what the cell phone data shows in terms of Trump's movements day of time after and, and then maybe during those ensuing weeks. But I, I think it's a bit hard to tell exactly what's going on here. But I, I think what they're trying to say is um, because other people had access to Trump's phone. Mm -hmm. Maybe the tweet about Mike Pence on the day of January 6th was actually written by someone else and not Trump. Or maybe it was written by Trump. But this expert is going to be able to, I guess, offer testimony that like I, we, we know Trump does, you know, six laps around his living room or something, and that's where the text came from, or the, that's where the tweet came from. So we know that was Trump, that kind of thing, which to me seems like not focusing necessarily on the most compelling part, as you were saying, of this whole indictment yeah, against it, Trump. But I will have to wait and see, so we're just speculating. I, I haven't seen much reporting on how they expect to use these phone records against Donald Trump. The, the indictment was specific to say that this is not about things that he said on 1-6. This isn't a speech case. I think they were very self-aware that that was the critique they were going to get for bringing these charges. And they went out of their way to say this isn't about his statements on that day. If you were trying to make a case about incitement, I could see maybe why you would want these records. I could see having an interest in the records to see is there going to be a defense where he argues that he tried to prevent the riot from happening, that he made calls in an effort to, you know, bring down the temperature or to coordinate with Capitol Police or do things to try to prevent it escalating in the way that it did. I think that could be exculpatory, you know, at least rhetorically for him. And maybe these calls can help prove, prove the counter case. But none of it seems to go to the core of the right. crime here, which is the conspiracy in the weeks leading up to 1-6 to submit the fake right. state of electors. They're going to say that at, at this time— you you received a, a call or a text from from Mark Meadows or from or from from Sean Hannity or Laura Ingram or who, you know whoever or, or or your son or people who are saying hey it's getting really bad you got to do something you should do something about this this looks so bad for us and you didn't do it and he didn't do anything about it. I th that's what they're going to demonstrate by showing you know when his fingers were literally on on the buttons which which is not right as you're saying is not really what's at stake here is not really the, the, the thrust of the, like, his, his failure to do more on Jan. You can not think he should be president because of that. You can right. think that's a moral failing. But again, it, that is his speech. That is his speech-related choices. And they've not charged him with incitement because right. it would be laughable to try to do so. Right. There, th this should be about the actions that his associates took to submit a, a fake slate of electors. And, uh, and I don't know that they're laser-focused on that because of the January 6th the day, yeah. January 6th, that obsession that exists in kind of in, in the media and in a lot of uh, a lot of people who hate Donald Trump. Well, of course, 
everything is political. Um, everything that all the parties are doing is political. And when you look at you know, moments like this and what the phone records could potentially prove, that does highlight the extent to which this might be a political case that's being made here to create bad optics around a presidential candidate um, so that you can argue, here's a guy who obviously didn't respect our institutions. Here's a guy who, when, in his last moments of leaving the country, in the last days of leaving the country, didn't do what he could to keep these sacred institutions safe. There are people, institutionalists, who care about those kind of arguments, and maybe that's what this groundwork here is all about. It is also worth just mentioning the, the last piece of this is the special uh, counsel trying to keep these court dates on track um, to get a resolution of this before the election um, by skipping over the appellate process and going and try to get the Supreme Court to weigh in on whether or not he has presidential immunity here. This is apparently a very unprecedented practice. We'll see if it actually gets taken up by the Supreme Court. Of course, a lower court held that he did not have the extensive immunity that he was hoping for. So we'll definitely stay tuned on that one and keep you apprised of any updates. Yeah, for sure. Um, more rising right after this. Harvard President Claudine Gay seems safer now as efforts to get her fired haven't worked yet following a contentious hearing over anti-Semitism. She was accused by conservative commentator Chris Rufo of plagiarizing sections of her Ph.D. dissertation. Washington Free Beacon reporter Aaron Sabarium claimed he found even more evidence, posting a thread on X yesterday, saying Rufo's, exam Rufo's example is just the tip of the iceberg in four articles published between 1993 and 2017, including her dissertation, Gay paraphrased or quoted almost 20 authors without proper attribution, in some cases lifting entire paragraphs paragraphs verbatim. Rufo continued to criticize Gay over the alleged plagiarism, tweeting her statement and adding, Harvard President Claudine Gay responds to the plagiarism scandal by telling the Boston Globe that she, quote, stands by the integrity of scholarship. Note that she did not specifically deny the allegation of plagiarism nor explain repeated violations of Harvard's own written academic integrity policies. Bottom line, Gay's work clearly violates Harvard's own standards. This scandal is not going away. Nevertheless, Harvard appears to be standing by Gay as the Harvard Alumni Association Executive Committee expressed its unanimous support for Harvard President Claudine Gay and asked the university's governing board to publicly back Gay in a letter sent on Monday. So this, um, this is continuing. We discussed this yesterday. Um, so there seems to be—there's not acknowledgment by her that she did anything wrong, but the Harvard Crimson, I see now, has reviewed the passages and say that some do appear to violate um, Harvard's current po policies around plagiarism, academic integrity. That's the, the student newspaper, obviously. Um, Sibarium says he spoke with um, several um, um, experts and who agreed that she should have done more work here. Look, there is a difference—we talked about this yesterday—but there, there there's a difference between, like, plagiarism, plagiarism, and what might be considered, like, lazy plagiarism, where you just don't do enough job—a uh, good enough job, you know, rewording the phrases that you're citing. Um, it, this is clearly more of that, more of that case than the former. Um, still, I think it's—I um, I think it says something about the state of academic institutions that you can— rise to the very top to be president of Harvard while committing these very basic errors that do vi that violate Harvard's stated policies and I, and and you said you know you talked yesterday about well are we should should we review everybody and I'm sure if we reviewed everybody we would find tons more examples of this I don't think she's like some outlier in terms of this I think it speaks to 
the lack of seriousness with, within our academic institutions. That's interesting. I think it, it speaks to the fact that most graders don't catch everything, especially in an era before computer software. I suspect that without that computer software, Christopher Rufo never would have seen these things, and that we have a skewed expectation of how scholarship has always been done. Um, and I think it might be a useful exercise to use the computer software, ChatGPT, that we have now to review everything. And maybe that will cause us to have perhaps a little bit more of a sympathetic view to some of the things we're catching now with younger students. I have, like I mentioned yesterday, I have teacher friends who are really struggling with what to do right now with grading, which has become so much harder because software is being used, AI is being used to write stuff, but also when you use AI to check stuff, you're finding a lot more hits than you used to, and what are you going to do, fail the whole class, or do different standards need to be promulgated, or do you have to do all in-class essays? So this is a bigger conversation that I think should be had about how we do academia now that we have different kind of tools at our disposal and what we are actually trying to get out of college and what sh people should be learning. But I really don't think that we can have this conversation without a conversation about what is clearly an effort to cancel college professors because some people disagree with speech they're making specifically about the issue of Israel-Palestine. Well, but wait a minute. I mean, we're not we're not talking, we're really not talking in this conversation even about the content. I mean, what she's being flagged for has nothing to do with Israel-Palestine right. and the speech in question. Indeed. And yet, Christopher Rufo has made a decision to investigate her specific thesis for pretty obviously obvious stated reasons. And so are we falling for the trap of having a conversation about a 30-year-old graduate's award-winning graduate thesis instead of having a conversation about a long-term effort to cancel, deprioritize, silent speech on college campuses that is critical of Israel? I mean, Glenn Greenwald pointed this out, and he's been really um, firm on this. He tweeted recently that before October 7th, Penn's billionaire donors were enraged with Liz McGill, the Penn um, dean who was forced to step down, actually, were enraged with Liz McGill, hired in 2022, because she refused to cancel an event for Palestinian writers citing free speech. Some on the right are cheering censorship, but they're they're um, battling wokeness, like um, thinking they're battling wokeness, when in fact they aren't. Um, and he goes on to document a lot of other examples that preceded October 7th, that there has been a long-standing effort to cancel Palestinian voices on college campuses, to try to bully um, professors and deans out of allowing Palestinian voices to have the same presence on university campuses as um, pro-Israel Zionist voices do, and that this is part and par par part and parcel, rather, this, of that effort. But this isn't. This is not what they've gotten her on. What they've got. You described the thesis as award-winning. I mean, that is the. Pro it's an award-winning um, document that contains um, violations of Harvard's own policy on plagiarism. So that, like, that's a serious. It's not. It's not I'm sorry, she's not being canceled. She's being no, no more than someone who a Harvard student who, you know, copies their friend's test and gets disciplined and suspended is being canceled. It's like that's not it's not about the content of the speech. It's about following the rules that are like exist in academic institutions of integrity and making sure the person in charge of making those rules is also capable of following them. Like how is it the case that she's been celebrated and, and awarded through her career and at the same time making very basic errors that we're just supposed to excuse because she has the correct no, view I, on I, Palestine? I, I don't think that you should excuse them, but I think that if you're going to do it, do a comprehensive review of all of the professors. Let me ask you this, Robbie. 
when, what was it, um, Representative Plaskett threatened um, Matt Taibbi with an investigation by the IRS uh, as he was testifying before Congress about the Twitter files? Did that strike you as, look, did you say, well, if Matt Taibbi didn't do anything wrong with his taxes, then that's not really a threat, and so what's he even upset about? Or did you say a neutral and ostensibly neutral tool is being used to try to coerce him out of saying, speaking truth to power and giving testimony about journalistic endeavors that had revealed a bunch of unflattering things about Twitter and the government and their relationship with each other? Well, if someone said to her, if a member of Congress threatened to stick the FBI on her for screwing up in her thesis, then yes, of course I well, would she's denounce not being that. Targeted this by is just She's not being. The, she's being called to account by. I mean, the, the same way that. I mean, this I happens. Don't, I don't, this happens all the time. How can you not see the similarity here, Robbie? How can you not see that? I mean, do you, let me ask you this. Yesterday, you said you didn't care about Christopher Rufo's motives. But will you admit, even if you don't think it's relevant, that Christopher Rufo's motives here aren't the pursuit of academic excellence, and that he is specifically focused on Roxane Gay? Uh, sorry, I keep calling her Roxane Gay, who is actually a journalist and Claudine Gay's cousin, but not the same person. Uh, Claudine, Claudine Gay uh, for the controversy she's embroiled in around, around Israel-Palestine. I mean, he's a he's a conservative political activist and writer, so I, I know what he's trying to—he's, you know, he's very open. He speaks openly about targeting the institutions of the left, educational institutions. Mm -hmm. That's something that he—that's uh, his political project. And I've clashed with him or criticized him in the past when I think he's wrong, but this doesn't appear to be one of those cases. He's identified correct uh, examples of plagiarism in the same way that, like, and, and this happens to conservatives all the time. This happened like uh, that CNN, the K-file guy who goes and, and has dug up um, um, Republican and conservative commentators, their books, their dissertations, and found and found examples of plagiarism in them. We know, I, like I don't remember any tears being shed for that project. Um, or for I, those I just, people. I'm just not That's familiar. Just, it, I'm not it's, trying it's to a be difficult. I just common not occurrence familiar. to go back and look at um, conservative people who get the slightest bit of attention to look at their book or their work so, and find exactly these kinds so of things and argument, hold them accountable. Is your is argument that politically motivated efforts to... It's all politically uh, motivated. Yeah. So we just have to evaluate the substantive. Right. And substantively, the argument Glenn Greenwald is making is that if you have framed yourself as a free speech advocate and been complaining for years about the lack of free speech on college campuses and to turn around and use safetyism and... Um, get students from an elite institution to make unsupported. Still, we're a week out from the conservative hearing, the the House Republicans hearing, in which they had a number of students from these institutions talk about their experiences of anti-Semitism on campus. And the one student in particular who made a very serious claim that a professor had said something along the lines of "You're a dirty Jew," without naming that professor, without substantiating it in any way. They are using safetyism the exact same way that liberals were accused of using, having being snowflakes and saying that if a, if a black student feels unsafe, we've got to shut everything down. I fail to see how that's any different. And it seems obvious to me that Christopher Rufo is using that exact same script that was looked down upon when it was described as wokeness 
to try to censor speech on college campuses. And just because the other side did it too is not a reason for people with integrity who say they actually care about speech to think that this behavior is okay. I do care about free speech, and I, I agree with you generally on what you're saying. I just don't think this is an example of that at all. So you I think mean, that it's just that. a coincidence that in the middle of a no, national— I, know, I don't think it's—no, I know that it's not a coincidence. I understand that he has political motives. So but what he, has what he has uncovered is legitimate, and it would be legit. I mean, they're, she, they said Harvard Corporation said they're going to correct it because it's it's not it, it should not be done that way. So what was it done in service of? What was the purpose of Christopher Rufo's inquiry here? I'm is, saying is this, doesn't matter. If you care about, if you think it's legitimate and you care about the integrity of academic institutions, then this has to be a much more holistic investigation than if just you one care woman, about right? The integrity of academic institutions. You can't just say, well. In this case, well, I don't like Christopher Rufo, so but this Robbie, is illegitimate. Or, quite... uh, well, he's working to some goal I don't Robbie, support, is that so what we I'm get saying? to ignore this. Is that what I'm saying? I, I think I've said today several times and yesterday several times that absolutely do a holistic investigation of all of the theses of uh, professors mm -hmm. and perhaps even students using the tools at our disposal we have now, like ChatGPT, to do it. E more easily than you used to be able to do well, it. Uh, Go ahead and do it. If you're sincerely concerned in academic integrity, that's of course what you would do. Well, if I, you're not sincerely concerned with academic integrity and it's a witch hunt to cancel speech on campus, you would do what Christopher Rupo is doing. Okay, and, and, and again, when 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 CNN looks through whoever the whoever the the conservative or like Fox News person with a new book and says, oh, here are some examples of, here are, you know, insufficiently uh, clarified or recontextualized remarks, and do we sit and say, well, this is illegitimate because you haven't scanned oh, through every person fine. in this category? I, I have it's... no issue with people doing that for Roxane Gay, but I don't think that she should be fired and canceled over yeah. it, and I don't, you can't really cancel an author in that way that's not firing from the job, they wrote, they wrote the book. And as we learned from Bethany Mandel, oftentimes having a publicly embarrassing moment can be quite advantageous and lucrative to you. So that's just the way the cookie crumbles. That's just, you know, yeah. that's just the media. Everybody, my broader point, everybody's motives are political. So we can't say, well, your motive's political, so we're not going to listen to you. But your like, everyone has, like, in, in this game, in the game of politics and writing and reporting and activism, they're not neutral actors. Everyone has some kind of agenda. So we have to, so rather than try to, so we, um, my, that's my view, is that we, I mostly okay. just have to evaluate what's put on the table rather than right. why it's being put on and the table, because there's always a why. And I'm saying, I'm against a free, I, I'm for free speech. Well, I'm so, for free speech. So too. when I see an agenda that's an anti-free speech agenda, I'm going to push back against it. And I'm going to push back against this as, as a long series of events that have tried to actually constrain the limits of speech on college campuses, and specifically and most notoriously constricting pro-Palestinian advocacy on college campuses. Yeah, well, I mean, Christopher Rufo's view is, is not that he is trying to restrict free speech or constrain speech on campus, but rather that um, like diversity and inclusion administrative officials on college campuses are the ones themselves who do most of the restricting of speech. What is, and if what we is eliminate Gay, or reduce those is Claudine, Claudine Gay is the dean will, of Harvard. She's not the diversity and inclusion board of Harvard. What does that have to do with Claudine Gay as opposed to any number no, of you're, other professors? You're, you're describing his broader project as one targeting right. speech. But and then, say, but in he, your, doesn't, he doesn't view it that way. Right. But if he's really out to get DEI, what does that have to do with Claudine Gay? It, what it has to do with it is there are here are examples of her committing lazy plagiarism that are not acceptable for the president but of the organization that the dean why why not go after everyone if you think it's an academic issue or go after the DEI programs for some specific policy you don't like what is in looking at the dean of the university who's obviously under public focus because of her defending Palestinian speech mm -hmm. on campus have to do with DEI 
Is it because she's black? No, no. It's because she's a, a broader, she's the head administrative figure, and Rufo-type people are dissatisfied with administrative leaders who have allowed this bloat of DEI to fester, which has been used to, to target speech for the safetyism reasons that you were citing. No, it's not because she's black. It's because her, again, her award-winning uh, dissertation contains violations of Harvard's own policy on these things as, as according to the Crimson and according to Harvard. She's an economist. What does her economic thesis have to do with DEI? And if there being errors in that thesis have to do with DEI? Nothing. We're just holding someone who violated Harvard's policy accountable. All right. I think she is viewed as a as a uh, supporter of DFI, DEI efforts on why? Harvard and other places. As opposed to any number of other professors. No, who, not as opposed to other, in addition but to. Then, so why not investigate? Why not look at Harvard those? is a representative Robbie, case as the most influential and elite then, institution. Then She's a prominent person at this very elite ac academic and educational institution that conservatives have grievances with. So she's being targeted, and there's a legitimate. That's why she's being targeted? You're saying she's being targeted because she's black. I'm saying she's being targeted because she was just hoisted up in front of Congress and asked, uh, uh, don't, why won't you condemn genocide? Why won't you condemn genocide with a bunch of other presidents? And now there's been a national effort to get them kicked I mean, out of their jobs. The, the other two weren't black. I know. Yeah. And the, and, other and two, the, one, the one who's, I mean, the, the white, one of the white women has lost her job. Yeah, and the other two haven't been targeted by Christopher Rufo as uh, having academic integrity Maybe he looked through the, their dissertations and didn't find Maybe. obvious I mean, examples I, of plagiarism. I would love to be, I would love to know more about that. Like I said, I support a comprehensive evaluation of whether academic integrity standards are being upheld at U.S. universities. Does Christopher Rufo, or is he using this as a cudgel to advance the kind of speech that he thinks is appropriate on college campuses and cancel and suppress the kind of speech that he does not think is well, appropriate Well, I guess we're not disagreeing. Campuses. What's good for the goose is good for the gander. We can investigate every administrative figure's dissertations and academic work for inconsistencies and violation of policies and punish them accordingly. Don't threaten me with a good time. That I'm sounds sure, I'm wonderful. Sure Let's Rufer get going. I'm sure will be right on that starting with Alan Dershowitz. All right. We're <laughs> rising right after this. Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky has touched down in Washington and will meet with President Biden today to make an appeal to senators and House speakers Mike Johnson to congregate support for more aid to Ukraine as the country continues its fight in a war against Russia. Unity News Net wrote on X, Zelensky meets the only people with a smile still on their faces over the Ukraine war, the U.S. weapons manufacturers. Let's listen to what words he had for them. I want to thank you, all of you and your partners, and of course, please pass from me messages to your workers, people who really work and they did a lot for Ukraine, just five, I mean, less we are facing to this war, as unprovoked war, and we understand that without such people, companies, and uh, such, such workers, and we we really couldn't manage and and save our land. An incredible use of aspirational music to underscore a plea to the defense industry to give you more money without any articulation of how it's in, one, Americans' interest, or two, in the long-term interest of Ukraine, given that, of course, it's in the middle of a battle hopefully more toward the end of a battle with a nuclear power that America has, will not commit I hope, will not commit to engaging 
directly. Now, what's the yeah? What's the strategy? What's the plan? Why is it that this time this level of aid is going to make a, a difference in turning the war in Ukraine's um, direction? Like, what is the long-term plan? They clearly don't have one. And, and now we know. So we've heard. We've we've read reports from U.S. intelligence officials who knew from the beginning that this was going to be a rough task in the first place to to prevent Russia from taking these regions of Ukraine, yep. that they want to be uh, a part of Russia, that this was always going to be a fraud goal. The Ukrainian generals disagreed with U.S. strategy repeatedly and did their own thing. It might not have mattered at all, but here we are. We are in a place where this war does not seem winnable. It seems like it could go on. It seems like we could keep giving them money and they could keep putting up resistance and people could keep dying on both sides of the conflict. Or we can admit that you know, frankly, the 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 Ukraine's existence as as a as a country, as a people, even Zelensky's government are not actually at risk here. From everything we can tell, that this is a, a territorial dispute about part of Ukraine. Um, this is not a march across Europe. This is not the beginnings of World War III, unless we choose to make it world, the beginnings of World War III, which is not you know taking agency or action away from Russia. Russia should not have done this. Vladimir Putin is an autocrat. You know, if something could be done about that without um, severe consequences, that we would. But what thing? But it's just not reality. It's just not reality. The reality is he's going to remain in power, yeah, the, and we have to contend with him. I think the tragedy is misleading Ukraine in a way that caused it to avoid diplomatic resolution earlier, yeah. in a way that could have saved a lot of lost lives, and lost infrastructure, and lost everything uh, in the country. If you're going to end up at the exact same place today that you could have ended up two years ago when there was a deal on the table that was thwarted by the U.S. and the U.K., then you cannot look at the generous aid that the U.S. has been giving to U Ukraine as aid. It's almost, it feels like a blood money payoff to throw Ukrainian bodies in an American problem, which is weakening Russia, instead of coming to the solution that many people in Ukraine, including ethnic Russians, would have preferred, which is a diplomatic negotiation. Now, we should remember that Congress, this is from a Reuters story today, has approved more than $110 billion for Ukraine since uh, Russia's invasion in February of 2022. $110 billion for Ukraine, but notably no new funds since Republicans took over the House from Democrats in January. That is a pretty significant and notable shift. And for those Democrats who say that foreign policy doesn't drive politics and who would say that no one is really interested in stopping aid to Ukraine, that we're all united behind Ukraine, that this is not going to be a political sore spot for Joe Biden in the general election, should play, play close attention to that clear black and white difference that people are seeing in terms of money going out the door if a Republican controls the House versus if Democrats control the House. It's hard to argue with those numbers. Yeah. I mean, Republicans made this a big priority. It was clear that conservatives felt differently from uh, conservative voters and, and, frankly, probably a lot of independent voters and, and left voters as well, that there was a constituency for a different policy on Ukraine than what the elites in both parties, um, really a lot of marching in lockstep on, on the Democratic side with a small number of, of, uh, of uh, Congress members who, who felt differently, but, you know, who got shamed into reject, right, re, re, uh, rescinding that letter. Remember that? Mm -hmm. asking, I do. Like, just asking, mildly asking, what's the strategy? Is this going to yep. go on forever? Is this really a good idea? And they got, you know, they, they, uh, they got attacked by, by Democrats for that, by other Democrats. 
Uh, the Repu on the Republican side, it, the, the interventionist um, voices have kind of risen up and, and forced the, pol the party to contend with that, even though Mitch McConnell hates it. He's all for giving as much um, funding to Ukraine for as long as possible. But uh, he has to contend with a lot of people in the House and the Senate side who don't feel that way. Yeah, let's, um, let's take a look at a pitch from J.D. Vance and how the spending priorities of the country are being framed by some of these um, more, I, I don't want to call them isolationists because that's a negative right. state, non-interventionist you know, non yeah. Republicans. Let's take a look. You have people in this town saying we need to cut Social Security. There are people who would cut Social Security, throw our grandparents into poverty. Why? So that one of Zelensky's ministers can buy a bigger yacht? Kiss my ass, Steve. It's not happening. Now, J.D. Vance is the one who in an earlier time in his life, did support those kinds of reforms, cuts to Social Security. And, but so did a number of Democrats, including Joe Biden. So that's neither here nor there. The point of the matter is that today he's making a pitch that sounds very compelling to the average American ear. Yeah, and I, I saw him getting in a lot of fighting on social media with kind of with Nikki Haley supporters um, over this. Um, look, obviously, I, I, I do support reducing government spending, but you have to be, like, across the board on it. And I absolutely think it's a losing... It's a losing issue to do that. And it's doubly losing if you say you want to cut the, the benefits Americans are getting and give more benefits to people overseas is the most losing position of all, which is the position, unfortunately, many Republican elites and people like Nikki Haley find themselves in yeah. when they talk fiscal, you know, policies that I support on, on the domestic for you know, getting our house in order, not overspending, that kind of thing. But then it, that goes out the window when we talk about defense, the defense budget. It's never enough. It's whatever the government needs. And it's totally inconsistent. And people, uh, Americans feel that, um, that dissonance. And it makes them, I, don't, I think, not trust that Republicans have any kind of standards when it comes to it. Republicans complain about the debt. They complain about government spending. Then they take over, and they, they, don't, they don't do a thing about it. It's the quintessential boy who cried wolf issue. You're saying this is existential, the amount of, the amount of debt we have, that it's unsustainable, that it's at the root of so many of our econo uh, economic problems. And then you do nothing to, not only do you do nothing to fix it, you make it worse by overspending on defense. Yeah. And it, it should not go unremarked upon how the audience that was sought out the defense industry is exactly the only community that is really thriving and flourishing as a consequence of this ongoing conflict. As we reported over the summer, that defense stocks flourished after the invasion, uh, Russian invasion of Ukraine. There's been additional reporting about how politicians' profit is soaring. This is from Newsweek, as military stocks soar since uh, Hamas, the Hamas-Israel conflict um, started. And again and again, the real winners in these equations are the defense industry and the polit politicians who, for some reason, are still allowed to trade and profit from their stocks. More rising right after this. The Texas Supreme Court has ruled that a lower court made a mistake when it allowed a pregnant woman whose fetus was diagnosed with a fatal condition to get an abortion per the Hill. The state Supreme Court said that Travis County District Judge Maya Guerra Gamble's decision to issue a temporary restraining order last week to allow Ms. Cox to have the abortion was a mistake. Gamble's decision on Cox's medical emergency was put on hold by the Texas State Attorney General Ken Paxton, who asked the state Supreme Court to intervene in the matter. The Supreme Court temporarily blocked the lower court's ruling on Friday. Cox's fetus was diagnosed with trisomy 18, a chromosomal anomaly that leads to miscarriage, stillbirth, or the death of the infant within hours, days, or weeks after birth, and can cause fertility issues with women in the future.
Pro-abortion political figures and advocacy groups were quick to criticize Paxton and the Texas Supreme Court for their actions against Cox. Former presidential and Senate hopeful Beto O'Rourke posted a video on X of Texas Supreme Court Justice John Devine pushing his pro-life bona fides, which had gotten him arrested. Let's take a look. And ladies and gentlemen, I, I want to submit to you that before I ever got in politics, my convictions were forged in the, the crucibles of the pro-life movement. I got, I ran into a bunch of crazy Catholics and they talked me into rescuing at abortion clinics. And I rescued in Santa Austin and Corpus Christi and was arrested 37 times. Now isn't it an irony that today I stand before you as one who could very well win the Texas Supreme Court? This story in Texas plays against a backdrop of increasing reticence amongst GOP candidates to push for hard abortion bans. NBC News reports Republican candidates in states that will determine control of the U.S. Senate next year have quietly shifted their stances on abortion rights in an attempt to combat Democrats' success running on this issue. In key 2024 battleground states, some GOP Senate hopefuls have subtly begun to place more emphasis on situations in which abortion should be legal, while others have made clear they oppose a federal ban on the procedure. So this case has been really taking the country by storm, particularly because it is teeing up a lot of the issues that pro-life folks are concerned about when they see these more extreme abortion laws spreading across the country. Pro-choice so, folks, you mean? Sorry? Did you say pro-life folks? I, I, don't, I don't know. Um, people who want support the right to choose. Right. So uh, Ms. Cox, the woman in question here, is the mother of two children. She says she wants a big family. This was a wanted pregnancy. She went to the emergency room and to the doctor a number of times because of cramping and other symptoms that indicated there might be something wrong with the pregnancy. At some point in consultation with her doctor, the doctor advised, did, did the chromosomal test, found out that the fetus had trisomy 18, which in all but very, very rare cases results in the baby dying shortly after death in a very, very, very small percentage of cases. I think only 10% of cases live beyond the first year. Um, and in very anomalous cases, I think they can live to being a teenager with a whole host of health problems. So given that this woman wanted a large family and that there can be risks to carrying the child to term, to your ability to get pregnant in the future, the doctor recommended that she abort this baby. The um, lower court agreed that she should have permission to do so, even though she was at 20 weeks. Um, and the, then the Bill Paxton pursued this case and successfully prohibited her from being able to get an abortion. Now, she has since le left the state to get medical care, but this is raising some additional questions about whether or not we're going to see laws that Republicans have been flirting with that would also criminalize travel to other states or restrict people's ability to do even that. Yeah, I mean, I don't have I, much in the way of disagreement um, with you here on this. Um, e even most pro-life uh, people um, talk about uh, medical exception, health of the mother exception. This isn't even, I mean, th this is a component of that, but it's really, it really seems like a fairly helpless case, uh, one that does not should not be prohibited. Again, most pro-life people, I don't think, necessarily would want this prohibited at all. Uh, in, in fact, this is exactly the kind of exception they think should be in the laws they support. So why um, the Texas attorney general would be interfering here to cause more attention to the exact scenario that Democrats will, um, will 
bring more people into the fold by publicizing and saying, this is what Republicans will do if they have their way, if they get to write our abortion laws, this is the kind of thing, this is the kind of, um, you know, a, a policy they want to prevent, situation they want to prevent. That doesn't sound, it doesn't sound like a, a, a good idea at all. So, so there, I, part I, of, I, I have nothing else to say. It's not a, not a good idea. So part of the reason this happened is there's this conflict, that the legal conflict here is whether or not the standard should be a good faith standard, a determination of a doctor that the abortion is medically necessary versus a kind of higher standard that Paxton and the state are arguing for, which is a doctor's reasonable medical judgment standard. Now, it seems to me that under either, this woman should have been allowed to have the abortion. But what the state of Texas, where, to be clear, I don't know if we said this, there's an abortion ban in Texas. You were not allowed to have abortion at any point in Texas. Um, the the good faith medical without these um, mm -hmm. ex exceptions well, past litigating a past no a there's a there's an abortion ban cut off in Texas okay I don't know what the state of the law is it, Texas is the largest state in which there's an abortion ban is my understanding okay so um, the, the they're saying that if you allow for a good faith determination then that opens the floodgates the doctors can say that in my good faith medical judgment this abortion should be allowed. Um, and on and on and on. So they want it to be a higher standard. Um, and it's worth noting that if a doctor performs an illegal abortion in Texas, they can face up to 99 years in prison and fines of at least $100,000. That's all reporting from the New—at uh, least $100,000, yeah, that's reporting from the New York Times. So these are, these are the stakes for not just women in Texas, but also doctors in Texas who might come afoul of these court determination as to whether or not their judgment was reasonable and therefore within the law. It's a, I just looked up, it's a six-week ban. It's a six-week ban? Yeah. Okay. Yeah, so obviously we're in a situation here where it's 20 weeks, not because, again, someone was negligent and waiting too long, sure. but because they simply did not know that their pregnancy wasn't going to be viable. I mean, in the New York Times story, there's a picture of the woman taking a happy pregnancy pic, the, way, the kind that you post on social media when you're celebrating a a wanted pregnancy, and here you have a literal medical condition that's being precluded um, from the state. When we're talking about state actors getting between a woman and her doctor in these kind of intimate medical decisions and substituting their judgment for the judgment of medical practitioners, this is exactly that kind of case. Right. I mean, the, the pro-life view is that—I mean, and there's an argument over at one point, but and, and people feel differently about this, but that at some point— um, I mean, some pro-life people believe it's at, you know, from, like, conception and on. Some people think it's from heartbeat and on. At some point, there is what is what you are carrying, the fetus you're carrying, is essentially indistinguishable from, uh, from a baby. From, in some cases, they want the standard to be viability outside. You know, there's all these different um, uh, reasons people come up with for why this should be the cutoff. You know, it should be six weeks, or it should be 10 weeks, or it should be 12 weeks, or it should be 20 weeks. There shouldn't be one at all. Um, but this, right, it doesn't really apply in this case, if it is the case that this was a, you know, a, a, a genome defect that is not, this is not going to be a healthy, viable um, entity at all. I don't think most people want the government to really get Right, but as we've seen in many, in many policy areas in the United States of America, what most people want has absolutely no bearing on what Congress is willing to do. And obviously, yeah. certain conservatives have really made their bread and butter over being perceived as really zealous on this issue. I mean, we saw the clip from Bill Paxton bragging about how he made his bones pursuing exactly these kinds of, of, of 
I don't know, I would characterize them as rights, um, but, it, you know, interfering with these kinds of rights. Uh, and so there is this tension with the, the Republican Party, obviously, where there's an acknowledgement that this is a political non-starter. But that doesn't do a lot when you have states like Texas with very strict abortion laws that even most people in Texas, I would, I would suspect, aren't supportive of. But if a particular pop, uh, politician in a particular district can get political traction off of it, you can still see it having— um, right. An effect going well, Republicans effect. can save themselves from the situation by saying that, well, Texas can do what Texas wants. Uh, Texas is a red state, and voters don't like what the policy is. They can reject the political figures who did it. And California is its own state, and Florida is its own state, and Michigan's its own state. And there should not be a federal, a national abortion policy, which was a common, which was the Republican position, even among very pro-life political figures, was that, of, of, you know, we let the states decide. Do not have one policy at the national level. And then some people, like Lindsey Graham, for some reason, opened that can of worms, and now they have to keep taking stances on it, and it's, it's not, it wasn't politically savvy to do that whatsoever. Yeah, I, and I do want to—I'm sorry that we're having this debate— uh, Live, uh, my I I I'm I'm reading that there was a trigger law that went into effect in Texas on August 25th of 2022, which mm -hmm. bans all abortions in case uh, bans abortion in all cases except to save the life of a mother. Um, that seems to be what we're up against here. Uh, it, it was really quite strict, mm -hmm. um, a real a true abortion ban. And but to your point about traveling and making it a state by state issue. Pro-choice advocates have always pointed out that while people of means are able to travel to other states more easily, it's basically a tax on lower-income women to basically require them to do interstate travel in order to get basic medical care. Mm -hmm. Is that the country you want to live in? I don't know. This is kind of what's at stake in the upcoming elections and why Joe Biden, frankly, may be able to eke out a win, because this really is perceived as such a fundamental right to so many people. Mm -hmm. All right, stick around. We'll have a rising view right after this. Good day to be Donald Trump if you believe the latest poll numbers. A new poll from NBC News and the Des Moines Register found the former president leads his closest competitors, Florida Governor Ron DeSantis, in crucial Iowa by 32 points, former South Carolina Governor Nikki Haley trailing by 35 points, while businessman Vivek Ramaswamy sits in single digits at 5 percent. Trump is also sitting pretty in battleground states, Georgia and Michigan. Trump leads President Biden in the Peach State by 5 points among likely voters. In Michigan, that lead expands to 10 points over President Biden. Biden's poor poll numbers in Michigan can likely be chalked up to displeasure among voters surrounding the president's response to the siege on Gaza. A CBS Morning segment pointed out that in states like Michigan with large Muslim populations, those negative feelings could spell doom for Biden. Let's watch. 23-year-old Adam Abu Salah's concerns about President Biden are an alarm bell for Democrats. Uh, he's killing our people. Four years ago, he campaigned for the president, urging neighbors in predominantly Arab-American Dearborn, Michigan, to vote against Donald Trump. If you were to ask me two months ago if I was going to vote for Joe Biden, yeah, I would have held my nose and voted for him. He's worried about the health of the economy. But now, as the administration continues standing by Israel's deadly attacks on Gaza... Free, free Palestine! Free, free Palestine! Abu Salah says he and his community can no longer support the president. Compounding Biden's issues, a new Reuters-Ipsos poll suggests that third-party candidate RFK Jr. could sap more votes from Biden than Trump and give the former president the boost he needs to finish across the finish line first.
Yeah, so that is an interesting result because obviously we've talked a lot lately about RFK Jr. Um, having more of a detrimental effect on Trump, frankly, mm -hmm. of, of taking votes from Trump, which uh, you can understand the reasoning for that. Obviously, there's some crossover appeal on COVID and some other things. Um, Ukraine, um, RFK Jr.'s had a lot of combativeness with the mainstream media, which has made him attractive to conservatives. But according to this poll, it, it, this one had him taking support from uh, from Biden um, um, somewhat significantly. Uh, when RFK's candidacy was factored into the poll, Trump's lead over Biden grew to 5 percent. His overall support dropped to 36 percent, but Biden's fell to 31 percent from from 38 to um, 36, uh, with RFK Jr. taking 16 percent of the vote. Yeah, it, it is a, a tough time for Joe Biden. I mean, I think one of the most Notable aspects of the interview with the young Arab American man from Michigan is that even before the uh, siege on Gaza, he said he was going to he was willing to hold his nose and vote for Biden, and that Biden's support of Israel's um, bombing campaign, which has now resulted in the deaths of 18,000. Gazans has pushed him from wanting to hold his nose to vote for Biden to absolutely not being willing to do so. I mean, at best, we had nose holding, right? Mm -hmm. At best, we had begrudging support. And we knew that, right? Right from the beginning of Joe Biden's candidacy, we saw those polls, we discussed those polls that showed that something like over 70 percent of Democratic voters didn't want Joe Biden to be the nominee. And instead of addressing that concern by, at very least, allowing there to be a primary process, they said there will be no primary. How many times did we see Simone Sanders and other pundits and politicos say there will be no primary? They decided there will be no debates. No unofficial debates have been really hosted. There was a kind of a, a debate held on the Young Turks recently, but nothing on the mainstream media. And we just had the news last week that Florida, the Florida Democratic Party moved ahead and decided that only Joe Biden will be on the Florida ballot. This is the Democratic Party's choice. So how can they—I'm sure they're going to start doing voter shaming and, and full force as we get closer to the election—but really, realistically, how can they claim, given all they've done to ensure that only Joe Biden could be the nominee, despite him being historically unpopular and polling so poorly, how can they blame anybody but themselves for the likely outcome here, which is that Donald Trump wins again. I couldn't agree more. They are doing nothing, even at the same time that they say democracy itself is at stake and that we value democracy above all else. The greatest—there's no greater crime than, than doing something contrary to democracy. Um, they're not holding a real primary. Um, Joe Biden is not debating um, the, the people challenging him, Marianne, Cenk Uger, others, Dean, Dean uh, Phillips. Dean Phillips. Um, not going to have it. He's the his acolytes when they go on TV, they're going to say, "Sorry, he, you know, he's the king. You got to you got to kneel they, down." They say no they, one else is running. Yeah. They repeatedly just say they go on MSNBC and CNN. Yeah. People like K-City QB on on, on, YouTube, on Twitter collects these clips repeatedly on a daily basis. Almost you catch somebody saying, "Well, no one's running against Biden." Yeah. Unchallenged. Yeah. He, he they they believe he just get by virtue of being the incumbent president. He just gets another—he gets it automatically. That's the view—which isn't democratic at all and doesn't seem a, a particularly wise, given how unpopular he is and how old he is perceived to be by his own voters. I was reading some survey results. It might have been from this poll. I, I can't recall re recent polling, so it might have been this, looking at uh, on specific issues, how you trust Trump over—or Biden over Trump, how you feel about the two candidates. And Biden was behind Trump. 
massively on so many on economic issues on you know leading the country then there were some you know there's the kind of like in basic integrity questions mm -hmm. where you'd think where democrats would have to hope well at least biden is should be way ahead of trump on these where it's close like biden's ahead a little bit on the things that are perceived to be strengths and trump is just destroying him on everything else abortion is the only thing for which biden's uh, favorability is is significantly in the yeah. in the in the positive direction compared to Trump. Nothing, every, some other things are close, and then on a, on on the you know the major fundamental questions that people we are going to be going to the polls over inflation, over the economic situation, um, over over you know who do you over who you trust to run in the country? Yeah. People are picking Trump because Biden seems so old to them. Yeah. I Spot on, nothing to add to that. I would just also pick up on uh, the beginning part of our read where we talked about Trump's lead on the Republican candidates here. It is notable that while there's still, of course, a very large gap, the gap, the, the, the lead that he has over DeSantis and the lead that he has over Nikki Haley is very close, suggesting not a lot of daylight between those two candidates. DeSantis was discussed as the fate accompli from the beginning of this thing, yeah. and he has managed to just lose, lose, lose every time that he does a debate and is exposed to the public, um, where Haley is the only one—I mentioned this, I think, earlier last week—who is consistently gaining. Now, we haven't had a lot in the way of new polls since the last debate, but again, this was one of those moments where, you know, the pundit class says, you know, M Ramaswamy is drawing a lot of attention, Haley is flailing. But that doesn't seem to be bearing out in terms of the actual poll. So I do wonder what that means for her. I don't think it's likely that it means a that she'll be sitting in the White House in the Oval Office. Whether or not it means she becomes a more appealing vice presidential pick, you are skeptical about that for reasons that I think are legitimate. But it's interesting to keep watching what comes yeah. of the Haley surge. I mean, it would be interesting if there was genuinely, if, tr if Trump ceased to exist, mm -hmm. where, where would that 51 percent and how would it break down among the other candidates? Um, I think a lot of it would go into the DeSantis column and, I agree. and the Ramaswamy column, more so than the Haley column. But uh, you don't know. Obviously, you know, she, she, is, uh, she has a lot of charisma. She's, I think she's normal sounding, frankly, yeah. to, especially for non-Republicans, don't seem spooked by her, um, which, look, is, is an asset. It, again, it's not pleasing enough to a lot of Republican primary voters, but I, I've said this before, and I'm sure I'll say it many times over again, you know, this is a country that is certainly capable of electing blue states, elect Republican, perceived to be moderate, nice Republicans in blue states, they, they win. And you could duplicate this on a national level if Republican primary voters were willing to be a little bit more um, you know, strategic in their voting. Now, I'm not endorsing the idea that she's like actually the, a more moderate candidate. It depends on the issues. She is more moderate on abortion. She's right. more moderate seeming in her presentation. Her foreign policy is as, I mean, I, it's as hawkish as it can possibly be, whether that make, makes it conservative or I guess, or liberal is, is unclear at this point, but she is an advocate for a wildly interventionist foreign policy that I don't think fits the mood of the Republican Party and really never has. So there is, there's that aspect of it. But when she's talking on any other subject, she seems um, certainly like the one and polling suggests would do, it would be the most likely to defeat um, Biden, although certainly anyone is capable of it. And largely because of that perceptibly, you know, superficially more moderate stance yeah. on abortion, and especially, and we'll talk about this in an upcoming segment, given some pretty draconian abortion decisions that are coming out of Texas right now. So stick around for that, and we'll have a rising for you right after this. UFO whistleblower David Grush is calling out lawmakers over Congress's decision to strip key parts of the UAP Disclosure Act from the annual defense spending bill.
You know, what we're witnessing right now is, quite frankly, uh, the greatest legislative failure in, in American history. You know, you had a very strong amendment um, for government transparency on this issue. Whether you believe um, my allegations or not, uh, you know, this is a government transparency issue at large. And, you know, the legislation was modeled off of, uh, you know, previous government transparency um, issues. I mean, so we had a, a mixed bag of success, right? Um, if we believe the conference report uh, that was submitted uh, last week, Section 1687, which uh, effectively fences off money to illegal special access programs, something that uh, Marco Rubio, Mark Warner, and his staff on the uh, Senate Select for Committee for Intelligence championed. Uh, that did make it through uh, conference, and I do congratulate the senators that pushed hard to make sure that that was not removed during conference to help further this effort. It leaves the door open for anything that is, quote, national security, uh, we get to keep secret. 100%. Later in the interview, Grush had a message for his skeptics, including a bombshell about what he himself might know personally. People who saw your big interview that aired here on News Nation and who watched your congressional mm -hmm. testimony, you know, people who might not buy everything you're saying, who are skeptics, have said over and over again, he has no firsthand knowledge. He is just telling what someone else told him or telling what he read. How do you respond to people who say, because you don't have any firsthand knowledge, maybe we shouldn't believe you? Well, uh, I couldn't be very upfront about my firsthand knowledge until recently. I got some other security approvals uh, through the pre-publication and security review process. Um, and I did have some firsthand knowledge of some specific uh, parts of the program. Uh, I'm currently drafting an op-ed that I'm going to release in a few weeks, and I will be discussing what I actually do know firsthand. I, I just could not overtly discuss that at the time, including at the hearing, because uh, the, you know, the Pentagon and the IC were sitting on some of my pre-publication and review uh, paperwork at the time, so I could not acknowledge that. When you say you have first-hand knowledge, you actually saw something yourself? Well, uh, the deeper description of what I know has been redacted. Uh, they proposed a redaction in a pre-publication and security review uh, response a few days ago, and um, they're telling me to withhold legally some of the first-hand knowledge I have, but I'm allowed to generally uh, discuss that I was read into a UAP-related program directly um, by the U.S. government. Well, that is a bombshell indeed, just potentially. Tell us, just tell us. Yeah, just I mean, tell us. here's the thing. It, Do it. No, I mean, I can't, you know, he's worried he's going to get charged, but. Sure. But the, the first half of this is all about um, being frustrated that some of the um, toothiness was stripped out of the disclosures that people are pushing for, fine. But what the second part is, well, I actually personally know, and I have restrictions on me that have precluded me from telling you everything that I know firsthand of these programs. It is interesting that that hasn't been more of an emphasis up to date. As you've been advocating for disclosures more broadly because somebody in the government knows information, but not to be like, well, just free me and let me speak my truth, to not have revealed that, that he's under those kind of restrictions and that he does, in fact, have personal knowledge and to this point, I do think is going to strike some of his skeptics as generating more skepticism. You know, if he, uh, if someone with some knowledge of some things wanted to just, you know, mail them to some <laughs> reporter's apartments with full guarantee that 
Certain reporters would go to jail if it came to it rather than reveal who gave them that information. I'm just saying. Yeah, no, uh, I mean... At some point, this is how it needs to be handled. Yeah, like, we have whistleblower. I mean, I, yeah. I don't want to ever we will, minimize the danger. When the, the G-men try to storm this studio, we'll barricade the doors. <laughs> well, not, to, you know, there, there are people who deal in secret information and who have the experience in protecting whistleblowers in their privacy. It is very difficult. Even experts sometimes mess up in, in, in that respect. So again, I, I don't want to try to minimize the implications here. But clearly, Grush is someone who feels very strongly about this, who feels like it's something of national importance, of public importance, who's willing to risk some reputational damage over it. And I know that reputational damage and kind of legal liability are two very different things. But it, it, there does seem to be this interesting sort of gap. Um, especially when there are people to whom you could leak information and be protected from some of the worst of the um, legal consequences. And, and that's, frankly, that's the only way we're going to make any progress on this, because if it's up to, we'll structure a bill that forces the government to disclose, they're still never going to do it. I, like, I'm reading the about the UAP Disclosure Act. Yeah. It requires the government to release records about UAPs um, within 25 years of their creation. <laughs> Unless these records are found to be enough of a risk to national security that they require further mm -hmm. classification. Every single record will be found as such. We have so much experience with this. We have recent experience with this. Congress passed in a bipartisan fashion, and President Biden signed an order to release what the government knows about the origins of COVID-19. Mm. This is a very important question to me. Um, it's been reported by both independent journalists like Michael Schellenberger and by The Wall Street Journal that um, that the first people to get sick with COVID were the scientists at that lab. Does the government have information? So is that why the Energy Department has made that the, its judgment that it's more likely that it came from a lab leak? What, what, what caused them to reach that conclusion? What caused the other people, the other agencies, to reach different conclusions? I would like to know. I would like to see the raw intelligence, not just a summary of what the government thinks. All they released was a, like a new document. They made a new document to summarize what they think they know, but not saying, not the actual intelligence, which is what we wanted declassified, because we, at this point, we all should have the right to know. I want to know exactly why some aspects of the government and think one way and other aspects think other. What, what did they look at? Who have they talked to? There's no reason for us not to know that at this point. It's important. It matters. They're never going to do it. Yeah, and, that's, and that's disheartening. The JFK files are another that example too. where they were supposed to be released in their entirety in 2017 during the Trump administration. And that still hasn't happened under Trump or under Biden. And again, I, if I recall correctly, there was one of those um, kind of national security type polls that you can drive a, chuck, a truck through. Um, and obviously, the national security interest of an assassination that happened half a century ago are difficult to argue, but certainly someone somewhere is slow rolling the release of those papers for whatever uh, reason stated or implied. So here we are. Uh, and I don't know that it helps. I understand why Grush in that moment in that interview would want to substantiate his bona fides and push back against people who say that he's crying wolf. But I don't know that if you think about it for a second, that really helps his case, his credibility case, if he has first meaningful firsthand knowledge and hasn't found a way to get it out to the public. Yeah. Maybe but, that's unfair. I don't know. You, you let us know what you think and, about it. We're just saying we're available. <laughs> we would do our best to protect whistleblowers. I, I, I would go with someone a little bit more expertise dealing with whistleblowers and confidence. No, don't give anybody else the scoop. Come to us. <laughs> we, can, we can deal with it. All right, stick around. We're rising right after this.
First, folks, Tucker Carlson has officially announced the new Tucker Carlson Network streaming service. They told you the guys torching Wendy's in 2020 were mostly peaceful. They said that masks worked. They told you the vax was safe. They've tried to convince you that Russia blew up its own pipeline. The corporate media lied too much, and it killed them. We're driving to see Julian Assange. Believe me when I wait, tell wait, you. Wait, wait, wait. I should be boycotting Bud Light. Fantastic, Jeff. Thank, Thank you. you. <laughs> oh, that was amazing. Now, if you're a fan of Tucker but not willing to cough up an extra $9 a month in this economy, don't fret. For now, you can still catch Carlson's interviews on Twitter on X. In fact, a new episode with Kid Rock aired yesterday under the new Tucker Carlson Network name where he asked the country star about his personal relationship with Donald Trump. Let's watch. Trump. You've seen Trump a lot recently. How's he doing? Toughest son of a bitch on the earth. <laughs> He's doing great. It's incredible. He's you know, we just got to spend some time times. with him. Yeah. But you seem to be having more fun than anybody in that I was equation. Having, I was having fun. You watched that video back, and we're walking to the ring, and it was looking all tough, and you're like, ah! <laughs> You're like, this is the greatest day of my life. I loved it. Which was, that was so much fun. Like, it was amazing. I, I love spending time with him, getting to know him, you know, since he became president the first few months, having dinner um, at the White House with him, and from there on, we've just really hit it off. And, you know, I can relate to him in a lot of ways as somebody who might speak out of turn a little bit. Yeah. Say what's on his mind, but you know, I think if you look at his track record and who he is as a whole, there's a lot more good there than anything. And I think people, you know, I could go both ways. I always say with me, you can go on the internet and you can make me out to be some crazy wild party animal who just has his middle fingers in the air and doesn't care, or you can be someone who's a single father who loves his family, loves his country, does a lot of philanthropy. It's all there for the taking, and you know. I try to see the good in people. I haven't always executed that correctly or, you know, on spot. <laughs> but, you know, whatever it is, when I give it, it's it's 100% real. Well, so without, like, betraying the details of your conversations, you've been with the with Trump um, a bunch of times since he got indicted and the world mm -hmm. has kind of crashed in around him. How does he seem? Can't tell. Really? No. I mean, when we're golfing and we're hanging out in, in different scenarios here and there, it's um, his spirits are always up and he's he's... He's always talking about this country. He's always talking about this country. My dad is a big Kid Rock fan, so. Michigan. Michigan. Michigan origins. Um, yeah, I, I looked at uh, the Tucker Carlson Network uh, website. It's not just, you know, interviews with uh, famous people uh, like or, or more um, entertainment personalities. There's a debate over aid to Israel that uh, sounds uh, like that'd be worth checking out um, for you slash me slash us slash anyone. Um, what do you think of his uh, trailer? Do you think this is going to be on par for the content that we saw on Fox News, or do you think it's going to go in a different sort of direction? Yeah, I mean, you know, he was questioning a lot of those same things when he was on um, Fox, uh, you know, the kind of scrutinizing um, shibboleths of mainstream media uh, people. You know, Ray, he raised uh, a number of those, some of those things we've examined on our own show on COVID and on foreign policy, you know, dissenting from the orthodoxies of what you find elsewhere in the media. I, you know, I will say this is all coming at a pretty terrible time for uh, for the mainstream media. For um, I mean, Fox is still, if you Fox is, is a corporate is corporate media, but I don't know if you consider consider it mainstream. It's conservative media. They're doing well. MSNBC looks to be doing it's the okay. The most popular news show in America. Well, right. Yeah. So I'm not. So that's I'm not disputing that label. It's not if mainstream you wanna... media. It's the most I didn't mainstream say that. media. We we can label it however you want. If you can okay. say it's mainstream media, that's fine. <laughs> um, it's definitionally mainstream. 
Well, it's opposite. I mean, it's oppositional to the current regime in government. That's so was was CNN not mainstream when Trump was in office? You could say it wasn't. I would say that it was. <laughs> I would say that both are mainstream. It media. doesn't matter. We can say whatever right. we want about it. CNN not doing well at all lately, even with um, what you'd think of as their bread and butter, like war coverage, frankly, their ability to have people on the ground in conflict zones. Um, I think I last checked in on this middle of November, so a couple weeks ago now, and their primetime numbers are like a quarter of what um, Fox's are. Um, even, you know, for Anderson Cooper, for Caitlin Collins, they're getting like, yeah. Um, 250,000—no, Fox wins with 250,000, MSNBC, 150,000, and they have—CNN has an audience that's like a quarter of that. It's just nothing. Yeah, it's interesting because uh, when Mehdi Hassan's show was canceled, um, some people argued uh, that it was a ratings issue and not a content issue, not because he's one of the few um, Muslim hosts that had a— pro-Palestinian, or, you know, frankly, some people criticize him for not being pro-Palestinian enough, but who simply would talk about things like the ongoing occupation of Palestine or the death tolls or the humanitarian critiques that have been made by a number of humanitarian organizations and the like. Um, and it does look like his um, numbers were not uh, very good. The Post—I mean, relatively speaking, the, the Post reported that his show failed to garner more than 500,000 viewers on November 12th. It hit a low point with just 37,000 viewers in the key 25 to 54-year-old demographic and 411,000 totals, which was behind his rivals at Fox and uh, CNN both, according to Nielsen. But I did see um, Hassan pointing out on Twitter how viral many of his clips do go. And that is true. On social media, on Twitter, on YouTube, I think his clips probably—I mean, this is not empirical, but seem to certainly outperform uh, many of his peers. They're everywhere you look. And I do wonder if what we're seeing is something that uh, Tucker has some insight into, which is that there are different kinds of viewers that aren't being captured by these Nielsen ratings. There are different uh, patterns of consumption that increasingly younger people, which are the prime demographic at this point, are availing themselves of, and does the move to streaming, does the move to Twitter, does the move out, uh, outside of some of these traditional avenues actually enable people to capture really big audiences in a way that aren't being translated by some of this data? Yeah, and it's hard to compare exactly the, you know, who's sitting down in front of their couches watching TV. That, you know, that's what counts a lot for advertisers. Compare that to streaming or compare it to, um, to YouTube and Rumble. Um, but it's hard not to compare it on some level because I like even, even our numbers look pretty, again, it's, it's an apples to oranges comparisons. I'm not saying it's the same thing, but we had like, we had like almost a million people watch a, a rising video yesterday in a 24-hour period. Again, it's not comparing the exact same thing. But that ha we get that all the time. The, we, we hit a million um, a, a lot. Um, every couple of days, we, we, we're averaging closer and closer to that threshold. It's a lot of people watching. Yeah. That doesn't mean you know, that they've watched every single second of the entire show all day. So it's not comparing the same thing. But it shows there's just well, neither massive neither is the interest. Nielsen's rating. Well, right. No, it's, it's checking <laughs> in at a point of time, right. right, and saying, are they watching right now? Right. Yeah. So it shows the massive appetite for content that is fresh and independent and a little contrarian and weird sometimes and out there. And 
That's what we try to deliver, that uh, the mainstream, however you characterize them and whoever you put <laughs> under that category, is failing to deliver. All right, well, do keep watching. Stick around. We'll have more Rising for you right after this. As the war between Israel and Hamas continues with no end in sight, representatives of the Islamic Republic of Iran have begun to saber-rattle in an attempt to get Arab republics on the side of destroying the Jewish state. During an international forum in Doha yesterday, Iran's foreign minister said that the only thing Iran and Israel share is that both do not believe in a two-state solution and that a referendum should be held to determine the fate of Palestine, with only descendants of those who lived there prior to 1948 being permitted to vote. Ron's involvement in the current conflict hasn't received very much scrutiny. For our next guest, editor-in-chief of The Foreign Desk, Lisa Deftari, it should. Welcome to the show, Lisa. Thank you for having me. So how should we think about uh, Iran's current, what, what they've said about the conflict um, going on? It's not just currently. It's for 44 years, ever since this regime came into power in Iran. Its mission has been to destroy the Middle East and the global uh, community in terms of its instability, in terms of exporting terrorism, in terms of putting billions and billions of dollars annually into different terror proxies, including Hezbollah, Hamas, and the insurgencies in Syria, Iraq, and Yemen that we're seeing attacking U.S. assets. So when we're hearing more of this muscle flexing by Iran's regime, it only means one thing, that our foreign policy is weak and that they believe that they have the upper hand to continue making their threats, continue with their human rights abuses at home, continue with uh, attacking our assets in the region, uh, and of course continue with their support of terror proxies that are, again, contributing majorly to the instability of not just the region but the, the world as a whole. It seems like the visual images of the atrocities happening in Gaza, the 18,000 people uh, who have been killed in the last two months, the bulk of whom are women and children, the 10,000 estimated children that have been killed, the destruction of 80 percent of housing stock, et cetera, et cetera, and the critique from international, the international community has actually had a significant effect on the public perception of Israel and Palestine and United States such that demographic groups that once disproportionately favored Israel in this conflict are flipping the other way. If you believe that Iran uh, are bad faith actors in all of this, what do you think should happen uh, in, in Gaza that would not enable them to continue to say, well, look, this is a real humanitarian crisis going on here. The reason we should all be on side is to stop the humanitarian crisis that Israel is inflicting upon Gaza, as opposed to the framing that you offered world domination, exporting terrorism, those kinds of things. Right. Great, great, great question. And I love the way that you set it up very well. Um, most people do not know all the nuances that you just referred to, but I will start with this. There are two wars currently going on. One is in the Middle East between Hamas and Israel. It is not the first time we have seen Hamas and Israel fight. When you see Hamas and Israel fighting, that's where I alluded to Iran being the funder and the person and the, the entity that trained these terrorists. So it's really a proxy war between Iran's regime and Israel. And that will remain in the Middle East. East. The other war that we're watching is the narrative war that is being pushed by the mainstream media, college uh, campuses. Uh, we're seeing social media obviously being a huge culprit in all of this, in 
choosing sides based on these false narratives. You alluded to a death toll. There absolutely have been many innocent Palestinians killed. I'll be the first one to say that. We don't know the exact death toll because, again, it is coming from Hamas. It's coming from the Ministry of Health inside Gaza, which is run by Hamas. I will also point to the fact that many of these casualties are what we call collateral damage, meaning Israel, in, in its duty to defend itself and to eradicate Hamas, is going in and finding Hamas fighters. Many times using their innocent, innocent civilians, babies, children as human shields, hiding them in hospitals, uh, creating situations where their their own constituents, their own civilians are in harm's way, uh, not evacuating them in time, etc. Look, this is not pretty. It's war. Uh, and I think a lot of what is lost here is what happened on October 7th. I hear John Kirby really banging his head against the podium um, every other day when he has these press conferences, again, reminding reporters to start at the origin of all this, which is October 7th. Even if we want to go beyond that, this is a terror organization that is running or in charge of or the leadership of, of the Palestinian people inside Gaza. So when people talk about the disproportionality, let's start with the fact that we, we're fighting or, or the world is fighting a terror organization with Israel doing the dirty work. Um, you know, it's, it's very, very unfortunate that this has become so, you know, choosing sides. I mean, in Los Angeles here over the weekend, we had uh, pro-Palestinian protesters became very, very violent. They vandalized a church and many um, apartment buildings along the Wilshire Quarter near UCLA with graffiti. There were swastikas on four or five different buildings that I personally saw. I did a walkthrough early morning before they were able to cover up the graffiti. Now, it's a long stretch to, to connect a swastika with Bibi Netanyahu's policies in Israel. This has turned into open and unashamed anti-Semitism all over the world. And that's where we have to stop it. We have to correct the narrative here. And again, if people are really interested in the geopolitics of it, I remind you to go back and look at what Iran's regime is doing, where they're putting their money, how they're trading their own citizens, and ask an Iranian inside Iran who's been on the streets for the last year with the protests that uh, unfolded after the 22-year-old Masa Amini was killed for not wearing her headscarf properly. Ask those women who are taking to the streets how they feel about their government, how they feel about Israel, how they feel about the war going on right now. You'll get a more accurate answer out of one of them than you will from the influencers who are leading the discussion on social media. Uh, there's a lot there. Um, I, I guess I can start by asking you, you said that this started on October 7th, but of course, uh, as many people point out, this is a conflict that's been going on for 75 years since the 1948 Nakba, during which 700,000 Palestinians were forcibly uh, removed from their homes in Israel, and for many of whom were forced into Gaza. The population in Gaza is largely, even before this crisis, an itinerant um, migratory population, refugee population. And of course, some of the most egregious early bombing campaigns that we saw in Gaza were those that were targeting, or at least they hit, whether or not they were targeting, hit various refugee camps like Jabalia in, within Gaza, and then, um, along with UN targets and other hospitals, uh, churches, uh, mosques, universities, and other places that seem to have no uh, tactical or military relevance. Of course, we know that Israel has repeatedly claimed that Hamas is under every building an innocent person it has hit. But as we've just reported earlier this week on the show, 
uh, an Israeli analysis, uh, along with other international analysis, showed that Israel has been doing a worse job of avoiding civilians than any other conflict zone in the world in the last 20 years, the ratio of civilians that have been hit as compared to their own uh, articulated state of targets has been wildly askew. That being the case, and given that this is rooted back in 1948, and the fundamental concern that is being raised by people in Palestine and much of the Arab world is the ongoing uh, occupation of the people of Ga uh, Gaza and their inability Wait, to oh, have oh, their oh, own sorry. state. I'm sorry, I have to stop you right there, because there, there are a few things you well, said I, that I are, didn't, are— I didn't interrupt you, Lisa. I didn't interrupt you. Well, look, I, I, wanted, I, I let you say what you wanted to say. You characterized the protests in ways that I would not. They were protesting Joe Biden's visit to L.A. You made a lot of characterizations that I would personally um, uh, object to. But I just want to narrow it down, if I could, and ask you about what do you say to people who say this conflict did not, in fact, start on October 7th, that prior to October 7th, Israel had already killed hundreds of Palestinians. Um, the death toll of Israel killing Palestinians has always historically been higher than the other way around. And if, is the fighting ever going to stop? if the people of Gaza and the people of Palestine aren't allowed to have their own freedom? I, I mean, I, there's so much to uh, correct here. And I say correct because I, this is what I do for a living. It, in terms of its history, you, you said so many things that are incorrect. In 1948, even prior to that, the Palestinians were offered a two, two states. They were offered their own state. And at that point, they would have a larger state than the state of Israel. Then if you want to move forward, the number of casualties, well, why are they massacring Jews, innocent civilians, and not expecting there to be a, a uh, you know, any sort of retaliation? The Biden protests that you're talking about, yes, it was in, in, in uh, the, the reaction to Biden coming to Los Angeles for a fundraiser. But were there not swastikas on buildings? Were there not, was, was a church not vandalized here in Los Angeles? I mean, when you talk about the disproportionality in numbers, this is, it's, you're framing it in a very dishonest way, and that's why I have to stop you. If we want to have some sort of dialogue about this, we have to start with facts. We can't just be throwing out emotional things like the Hamas says. Gaza was evacuated in 2005 and given to the Palestinians to have self-determination of Gaza. In 2007, they voted in, in an election, Hamas. Hamas is the official leadership of Gaza. So when they're not moving their constituents out of harm's way and that death toll goes up, and then you talk about why is there a disproportionate death toll, Israel does its best to remove people. And if you've seen the flyers, I've seen them, I've been there. Um, I've, I've actually seen how they get people out and they do, they, they actually go with the loudspeakers and the megaphones and they try to get them out, which absolutely goes against their military strategy, by the way. Uh, they allow people to move out, and Hamas tells them not to. We saw the footage of Israeli tanks escorting uh, Gazans out of harm's way. We saw the United States go to bat to get American Palestinians out of Gaza when the, when the Hamas would not let them out. I mean, we have to talk about facts in order to, again, come up with a better solution going forward. If there should be a two-state solution, are we dealing with the Hamas that was, does not want to live side by side with an Israel? It's actually in the Hamas charter to eliminate Jews, not just Israel. That's literally not true, Lisa. It hasn't been true for years. And so you're, you're telling me that I don't need to be emotional. I don't feel like that's what's happening here, Lisa. It sounds like you're, you just said a lot of things that were factually 
untrue. For one, I don't know if there were swastikas at that at that event, but I do know I that there was recently. So what do you mean? It's, it's, it's out there. It's not, let me, not my let me, opinion. Let me, let me ask. I have, no, let me finish my thought. Like, I, I, I've let you, I don't think anyone can dispute that I just let you speak until you naturally finish, okay? You're absolutely right. But Go I do ahead. know that there was just yesterday or the day before yesterday, a scandal where in San Francisco, someone alleged that someone wrote, free Gaza, kill Jews, Allah Akbar on a wall. The Muslim community was outraged because Allah Akbar, A-L-L-A-H, is not Arabic and is not the phrase that was trying to be get, gotten across. It was clearly a framing attempt from someone who's not even familiar enough with the language to, uh, to, to accurately even do a false flag. So with all of that going on, I would rather stick to the facts that we do know as opposed to what happened at a, at a given rally where the overwhelming majority of people were simply protesting what the international community has now characterized as an ongoing genocide. And, and I just would like you to answer the fundamental question here. You say that Gazans had self-determination and that they, Israel very politely evacuated Gaza so that they could live there. But of course, as you well know, they're not allowed to have an airport. They're not allowed to come and go. Israel controls their access to water and electricity and um, the internet. You know that they were put on a calorie-restrictive diet, so that the, they calculated how much people need to survive to be just above starving and allow that exact number of calories to come within Gaza. And that's the state that they were living under, under occupation, um, up until October 7th and throughout. So the question is, do you expect that there will be an end to the fighting? Do you expect the Gazans to stop resisting their occupation if they never are allowed to have genuine self-determination? This, I, I, listen, how many millions of dollars this massacre on Israel cost Hamas? Why wasn't that money put into giving them more calories? Why, why are they spending all their money and resources on creating bombs instead and tunnels instead of using those pipes to get, give the Gazans clean water? I mean, I'm sorry, but you're framing these questions in a way that it's like, there's a lot of logic, but we're talking about a terror organization that does not care about the Gazans. And you're asking for the international community and Israel, the United States and the UN to care more for the Gazans than their own leadership does. Let's start with step one, calling out Hamas as a terror <laughs> yes. organization. Step two, calling out the, the massacre of October 7th as a terror attack. Step three, talking about Iran's regime responsibility and all this in funding Hamas and training those Hamas militants. Step four, I did an article in 2014 that got me put on the Hamas hit list where I talked about, where I interviewed dozens of Palestinians living in Gaza that said that they blame Hamas for their, the, the, the trajectory of their lives and not Israel. These are realities. The Palestinian people are in fact victims. They're not victims of the international community and Israel. They're victims of their own leadership, whether it's the PA or Hamas. And that is what we have to talk about. The, the caloric diet, I mean, and look at this massacre that happened. If you what were about Israel, the caloric diet? Do you want to finish that thought? What about the caloric diet? What, do you want to finish that thought? What, how do you justify keeping a population near starving? Listen, the Hamas needs to provide more for its citizens. It doesn't need to spend millions of dollars. How, how, on, how, should, how should they do that? How, how Look should at all they the do humanitarian that? aid that went in. How much of there's that a, do you think ma'am? Right are you aware hand? that there's a blockade on Gaza? Ma'am, are you worried? <laughs> are you aware that the, there's a blockade on Gaza? Gazans aren't even allowed to fish off the coast of their own land because of the Israeli it's blockade. Not true. This is absolutely listen. All this right. is absolutely not true. These, Lisa, these, this, it's not true. The, 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 
listen to this, the checks that they have on Gaza is because of pure security. When they use an ambulance with a fake pregnant woman inside of it to conduct a suicide bombing on the border or come into Israel, this is why they need to have a checkpoint there. Does that not make sense? Does Israel not have to protect itself for things like October 7th not to happen over and over again the way Hamas has sworn it will happen over and over and over again? And to the international community that's calling for a ceasefire, we would all love to see this war end. But before before you call for a ceasefire, call for those hostages to be released. Call for Hamas to put down its weapons. Call for Iran's regime to stop supporting terror organizations. This is what we all want. We would love for there to be Palestinians and Jews living side by side in peace. All of the world, all of the countries in the Middle East living side by side in peace. But it has to start with rooting out terror organizations that use the people's money to conduct a jihad and not give them food, not give them water, not give them shelter. Lisa, here's a question I have. What if in the course of rooting out Hamas, as Israel is doing now, there are so many civilian casualties that we create more Hamas fighters in the future, relatives of the people who've died, who Hamas becomes um, a more uh, esteemed organization because of all the death and destruction, and Israel actually makes its security problem worse? That's the, that's the fear I have. Sure, that's absolutely, I mean, look, what you're saying could be true, but what's the alternative for Israel to sit back and say, well, try again, or maybe, you know, and the fact that they're letting three terrorists out of prison for every one civilian hostage that they get back. That's those not are true. At, at a certain point, to. it becomes absolutely true. I don't irresponsible. understand where you guys are getting your talking points from. This is absolutely true. I mean, Ma'am, the idea that back. every, every sta statement that is not um, uncritically supportive of Israel in every respect, including the ongoing genocide in Gaza, is a talking point or somehow um, being a mouth point for Hamas is a, is a way to silence is a way to silence the discourse around this really important issue. So, look, we appreciate you coming and speaking your piece on the show today. Uh, thank you for joining us. Thank you. Thank you. Star Novak Djokovic is not anti-vaccine. He shared in new public statements. He's pro-freedom of choice. The athlete is speaking out after he was deported from Australia last year over his refusal to take the COVID-19 vaccine. Here he is on CBS's 60 Minutes over the weekend. Djokovic found controversy of a larger scale in early 2022. Unvaccinated, he got an exemption to play the Australian Open at a time when the country was coming out of a long COVID lockdown. But after public outcry, Djokovic was deported, making for a global news event. How much of a toll did that whole controversy take on you? It did. I was basically declared as a villain of the world, you know, and... You said so? Of course, and I had basically, yeah, most of the world against me. I had that kind of experience on the tennis court with, with crowds that were not maybe cheering me on, but I never had this particular experience before in my life. Did you misread the Australian public and what the reaction would be? In which way did I misread them? I mean, they don't like exceptionalism. This was a culture that felt very strongly but, about vaccinations. But, but the point is that it was not up to me to read anybody. I got the exemption, I got the permission to come into the country. And so, of course, it escalated to the highest of the highest levels globally. Correct me if I'm wrong, you were not against vaccination, you just did not want it for yourself. Exactly. People 
tried to, you know, declare me as an anti-vax. I'm not anti-vax. No, I'm pro-vax. Pro I'm, I'm, I'm pro-freedom to choose. Yeah, I think that's really interesting. I mean, whatever you think about people's individual decision-making, the point at which there, it became clear that there were not as many gains to be had from uh, in terms of transmitting COVID by personally vaccinating, the kind of community benefit argument took a, took a bit of a dive. And it, the public perception of that and backing off of that argument didn't follow what science was indicating. So that people who were making personal decisions at the same time that they weren't actually bullying or threatening or trying to coerce anybody else to do anything different were being framed like they broadly had an antipathy to vaccines. And you see this a little bit with RFK Jr. as well. When I started to try to dig into the accusations that he's anti-vax, as someone who, frankly, was not politically especially sympathetic to him, I found it to be difficult to pin people down. I had various experts on my show try to pin down what they actually disagreed with him with from a scientific perspective. Was he substantively wrong about his readings of various studies, X, Y, and Z? Because he also maintains that he is not anti-vax, that his children have all been vaccinated with the normal childhood vaccines, that he has some critiques of who should be taking what in different circumstances, but the holistic label anti-vax doesn't apply. It is interesting seeing now, all these years later, some nuance being brought to this conversation. Absolutely. I mean, it still just it boggles my mind that as recently as, what, last summer, he could not travel to the U.S. as an unvaccinated non-citizen, that we were still, we weren't letting people come into the country unless they were U.S. citizens if they weren't vaccinated. And for, like, for what? Like, to, to prevent to prevent COVID from entering the country? I mean, it's just laughable. The, the disease is here. And by, by then, you know, we knew that if, if there is a benefit of the vaccine, it's, pr it's predominantly for the person who takes it in terms of you know, some evidence of symptom mitigation, for, uh, particularly for very at-risk at people, not that, you're going to, that it's protective of others to a substantial degree stopping the transmission. Um, it, the idea that you know, our, our, we would still maintain this, a, a policy that our peer countries didn't have. I mean, we were the U.S. was stricter on COVID than a lot of our European countries in terms of, of, uh, of required um, vaccination, required uh, masking, required things being shut down. Now, people still wore masks and people still got vaccinated and people still avoided crowds and did a lot of those things in European countries. It was just, but it wasn't, it wasn't required of them. And we we required it and for, for really, for, for what? For not for substantial differences in outcomes compared to a lot of these places. Um, I, some areas of America had worse outcomes <laughs> despite the same levels of, uh, of militants. I think that reflects some underlying issues in the health system and the healthiness of our population rather than, rather than we, didn't, we just didn't shut down hard enough. That's laughable at a certain point. Um, I, I, so I was looking to see, you know, where, where, where we're at. Are there, there aren't, a lot of vaccine requirements left just generally in America, mm -hmm. but there are some, I was checking, and we can put this um, this tweet up on screen. This is from a group um, that opposes mandates for colleges. So they, they track how many are still left. There's still 71 colleges in, uh, in America that require you um, to, uh, to get vaccinated, boosted bivalent stuff to, uh, to attend the institution. There's fewer every week. Their colleges are dropping out of this regime. Um, it just it remains um, darkly amusing to me.
but uh, what? You're, you're smiling at me. Nothing. I'm, I'm happy. I'm happy. <laughs> I'm happy that you still have 71 to be upset about. I don't. I don't know what you're going to do when there's not a single one left. I mean, it's not, well, I'll be happy. I mean, it's not like <laughs> I don't wake up in the middle of the night in a cold sweat and say, Montclair University, how could you? But uh, but it's just silly and unserious. And this is like the least. Uh, for, for college students, for for health, I mean, this isn't for this isn't this isn't a list of nursing homes or something. This is a, this is a a a population that for for whom vaccination might be the right idea for might be the right policy for some of these people. Again, I'm like what Novak Djokovic said. I'm I, exactly the same kind of philosophy. I, I did get vaccinated. If I decide to get boosted again, that will be my choice. But to take the, the this choice away from the, the students at these at these a dwindling number of colleges still just makes utterly no sense to me. Yeah, I mean, there are a number of stores, um, you see that they're signage around D.C. that are banning wearing masks inside because of their, their fear of theft. Um, in Atlanta, there's this proposed ski mask ban that's been hotly debated. And it is interesting to see a little bit of asymmetry there. Um, we were told over and over again, no, people can make choices. We're not going to stigmatize you having a mask. But we've seen all these fights break out on planes where people seem to be triggered by other folks' mask wearing. And now we're seeing an attempt for a municipality to literally ban wearing face coverings, um, which doesn't feel very freedom of choicey to me. So we'll see where this goes. I'm not going to blow a gasket prematurely over what's going on in Atlanta and claim authoritarianism, at least not in that regard. I do think there's an authoritarian speech program that's going on that's intended to shut down conversation about the ongoing genocide in which 18,000 people have been killed in Gaza. But that's where my focus is, uh, less so on these things. But it is, it is interesting to see, on 60 Minutes of all places, a, a substantial tone shift, it seems, about how um, COVID-era policies yeah. Manifested. I think it's not. I think the vac vaccine mandates in particular, the extent to which we went down that rabbit hole is not going to be remembered as our as U.S. policymakers finest uh, finest moment. So. Yeah. I mean, I think the worst parts were people whose financial livelihood were implicated by it, people yeah. who were fired over it and things like that. For sure. Which happened to a lot of people. Happened to. Yeah. Happened to tons of employees, trucker, uh, government employees, too. Um, People in the military, obviously, uh, you know, now they're being invited back. Um, we talked about that. You might have been out the day we talked about that. Um, the military is trying to, no, because I their know, recruitment the numbers story. are bad. They're trying to say, hey, sorry, we fired you for not getting vaccinated. It's fine. Come back. Yeah. yeah the other thing they have to do to keep recruitment, get recruitment numbers up, of course, is just to not have any kind of health care or free education options for people in the United States of America. They've admitted to that. Well, that does it for us for today. Tomorrow on Rising, we will actually have Marianne Williamson joining us to talk about her 2024 campaign. You won't want to miss that. Be sure to like, share, and subscribe so you never miss any content. For those of you who prefer to listen while you're on the move, we're now available anywhere you listen to podcasts. See you tomorrow. Bye-bye.